0: Welcome to our recording today, which comes to you from New York University. Our guest today is Dr. Claire Gillen, who has made a trek from Ireland to the UK and finally to the US. Hello, Claire.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Thank you very much for meeting up with us. What we do at the beginning is get you to detail a little bit about your journey within science and how you ended up studying what you do.
1: Well, I guess like most people, it wasn't the plan when you start. First was absolutely sure I wanted to be a marine biologist until about the age of like eight or nine. But then like really quickly, I decided psychology was their career for me. It's like kind of bizarre, like that young. Well, maybe I was like 12 or something. Right. But I really wanted to be a clinical psychologist. So started on what is a very convoluted path to becoming a clinical psychologist in Ireland. It involves Mm -hmm. all these different steps. So the first of which was got to get a psychology degree. So I went off and I did that at University College Dublin. And then the next step, of course, is getting into this clinical psychology program, which takes another three years. Um, But in order to do it, you need to kind of tick three boxes. And one of them is you have to have research experience. Another is a taught master's. And then the third one is uh, clinical experience. So I was like, I'm going to get the first two in one go if I go and do a master's by research. So I applied to various places, including Cambridge. Um, And then when I went for my interview, my uh, potential supervisor was like, I don't really take people for master's. I take them for PhDs. It's like, okay, that's great to know. But then, you know, I was like, PhD, I can have a PhD. That sounds great. Only one more year? Sure, why not? Yeah. So it's kind of a silly thing to just jump into, I guess, with no real plan to stay in academics. But of course, one year in, I loved what I was doing. I was also attending clinic. I got to see both worlds and I realized, well, I definitely want to make an impact here mm-hmm. on people's lives who have psychiatric disorders. I don't think I'm very good at that end of it. Whereas yeah. if I can actually do the research that maybe brings some change around, then I'll kind of tick, you know, a lot of satisfaction boxes for yeah. myself. Yeah, and then um, I finished up there, had a great time, and uh, I've been here for a year at New York University. Very
0: good. So do you consider yourself more of a psychologist or a neurobiologist?
1: You know, I thought about this this morning, Uh because I was like, I'm going to have to answer that question, (laughs) and I came up with saying that I'm a neuropsychologist who tries to figure out psychiatry.
0: So what your research is largely concerned with is learning and habit formation and obsessive compulsive disorder right
1: yeah that's right yeah
0: and I think while people throw around the expression a little bit OCD the actual condition itself can be a a terrible affliction
1: yeah it's kind of um it's one of my pet peeves people come up you know in a bar in a conversation it comes up what I study and everyone says oh I'm so OCD and I do feel like that kind of trivializes it and Mm -hmm. you know I attend a lot of clinics know a lot of cases and it's really like a, a very disruptive, upsetting, distressing disorder that means that some people can't even leave their homes. But all that being said, in the last couple of years, I've kind of come around on the idea that, well, yeah, I mean, we are all a little bit OCD. And mm-hmm. that all that reflects is the fact that we're, what we're trying to study here is a biological process, that we don't expect to be turned off in some people and turned on in other people. Rather, mm-hmm. we expect it to be like anything biological, to exist on a continuum, on a spectrum, where different people have different traits and tendencies, and at some point they become clinically relevant. But most of us can get along with our daily lives uh, with these kind of features and not have it get to this kind of really distressing stage. And in fact, what I'm doing now is very much focused on this idea that we shouldn't be looking at OCD as a disorder or any of these things as disorders, but instead be looking at these traits in healthy people, in, in across the whole population and seeing how this natural variation maps onto biology in a way that we can't do with these diagnostic categories.
0: So I'd imagine you have a number of techniques you use and I think one of them is fluorescence magnetic resonance imaging or fMRIs people <laughs> prefer to say.
1: Functional magnetic Functional, resonance sorry. imaging, yeah.
0: yes. Can you explain how that
1: works? It's a tool that's that's been really popular in the last few years, and there's a lot of things that it can do, and there's also a lot of things that it can't do. Mm -hmm. Basically, what it does is it takes advantage of the magnetic properties of blood. Moreover, the difference between the magnetic properties of oxygenated blood and deoxygenated blood. Mm -hmm. Basically, this big magnet can tell us which parts of the brain have more or less oxygenated or deoxygenated blood, And we make an inference based on that as to which part of the brain is engaged in a current task. Mm -hmm. Now, there's lots and lots of problems with this technique because we don't know really what the significance of deactivations or deoxygenated blood is. We know that lots of regions have an interplay with one another where one goes up while the other goes down. So there's a lot of kind of um, conceptual issues but what it has been able to tell us in very broad strokes is what part of the brain is being used at a a given time when we're performing a given task. And what other techniques
0: do you use? Because I understand you you work directly with patients.
1: Yeah, so habit learning has kind of been at the centre of what I've been studying. And the reason it is, is because we think it's a very good model of compulsion, which is this tendency to need to do something that you don't want to do. Mm -hmm. So this divergence between your intentions and your actions. And we think that the very normal process of forming habits is a really good way of explaining that, or might be the brain process that explains how this happens in various disorders, so addictions, OCD, even eating disorders, like where you have binge eat or you compulsively restrict your eating or mm-hmm. exercise. All these kind of things we think are related to this compulsive problem, which might be a problem with habits. So the way that we um, test for it is we train people on very repetitive tasks, and then we see if at the end of training they've formed a habit or not. The best way to explain it, I think, is taking an everyday example. So when you start a new job, well, I Google extensively on where I have to go, because I'm not very good with directions as it is. So I print out a map of where I need to be, walking down the street, and I'm like checking, have I gone past that street yet? No, no. You know, making sure I know exactly how long it's going to take me to get there, How Mm -hmm. and all the various steps. But then, you know, you work at a job, you know, I've been here for a year at this stage, and I can just automatically get to the office without any real concern at all. Mm -hmm. So this means it's great. I can, like, you know, have my head in my phone when I'm walking. It's an annoying (laughs) habit that everyone has. Uh, So, you know, it's this wonderful system that lets us automate all these behaviors. Um, and most of the time, there's no problem. It is just as great as it sounds. Or how you tell if you have a habit is when things like your motivation changes and we see if your behavior is going to update and reflect that change. So if on the weekend, instead of, you know, walking, I have to walk very short distance, I'm embarrassed, like the four blocks to work I have to, work, <laughs> to walk. And, um, but if I get up on a Saturday, you know, and actually I'm meant to be going to the shop for milk and I find myself instead taking a left and heading to the office, you know, waiting until I get to the door of my building before I realize that actually this isn't where I wanted to be at this yep. moment. So that's evidence that our habit system is kind of, is handling a lot of things behind the scenes that we didn't really realize it was. And so this, is how we test for habits in the lab. Mm-hmm. So we change people's motivations and we see, are they going to keep pressing that button, even though it doesn't produce anything useful for the moment? So one thing that we do is we have a task where people avoid electric shocks. And we can look at fear and a lot of different things using this technique. But at one stage, we just take off the electrodes. So they physically can't be shot. And then we put them back in the situation where stimuli are being presented to them. And we find that, Under certain conditions or indeed OCD patients in many cases will continue to respond even though it's impossible that they can still receive the aversive outcome even though the action is completely redundant. So this is kind of, um, I guess, how we draw from real life to the lab.
0: So are there any treatments or is anyone working on treatments?
1: Yeah, the problem is the treatments aren't very good and they're Uh not very... um, specialized for different disorders so um, for OCD the most common treatment is exposure and response prevention it's essentially a face your fear treatment where to get rid of this compulsion to let's say arrange things in a drawer or to wash yourself compulsively you have to just not do it Mm -hmm. and you just sit there and get terribly terribly anxious And then over time, this anxiety dissipates and then the need to do the action also goes away. But there's cases where you have a mother who, you know, needs to um, check the drawer in the kitchen to make sure all the knives are there. And it's because she has this thought that's associated with this compulsion and that I'm going to kill one of my children with one of these knives. She knows she won't do this on almost every level, but there's a, a nagging feeling that this is a possible scenario. So you tell her to not check that roar, you can imagine how much anxiety that provokes. So the treatment is not very well tolerated by a lot of particularly severe patients. I would say it's very effective if executed but it's just almost impossible for a lot of people to go through it. There's also pharmacological treatments for OCD so the most common of which is um, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, um, otherwise known as antidepressants or SSRIs but by and large, it, let's say less than half of the patients get mm-hmm. better, right? which is a really terrible um, outcome for a you know a disorder that we've known for a long time. Yeah, but you know when you think about it, it's not surprising because we're doling out these treatments kind of on the basis of a disorder that we've invented, based on a cluster of symptoms that are kind of when these things go together we call it this. When these things go with something else, we call it that, and we're going to give these two things totally different treatments. And um, so the point is like we're we're kind of trying to do our treatments based on a system that doesn't have any biological relevance. Yep. So that's a lot of what we're trying to get around in psychiatry at the moment.
0: Okay. I think, actually, since we had a number of questions via email, I might switch to some of those. And this is kind of linked to what you've just been talking about. Caroline would like to know, do people with obsessive behavior ever just get better on their own or without treatment is it a downward spiral?
1: Oh, that's a really good question. Um, So I would say, um, yes, like a lot of psychiatric disorders, there's kind of an ebb and a flow that can happen in the course of a lifespan. But for most cases, in order to get out of this kind of downward spiral of OCD, some intervention has to take place. Mm -hmm. So whether it's the individual themselves kind of going through this kind of exposure technique, which people uh, people can impose these kind of restrictions on themselves without seeking formal help, but in most cases, um, you need to go to um, your healthcare practitioner and go through some kind of course of treatment.
0: At what point does a harmless habit become a compulsion?
1: Is there a line you cross over? Yeah, I mean, with all these things, you know, we have to make a line. You know, be it like hypertension or be it com- compulsivity, there's kind of these criteria, or there's these um, uh, ranges that we say are normal or abnormal. But in terms of psychiatry, I think it's important do so i mean the the most important line the line that's most frequently drawn in psychiatry is the line between i am happy with my life i am able to leave the house i'm able to have a normal job and function or i can't do one of those things or i'm or i'm not feeling very well i'm incredibly anxious i'm unhappy Mm -hmm. so it's about um how well the person can live their life and often it's up to the patient to decide how impaired they are so you can have a lot of symptoms of OCD, but be really high functioning.
0: Melina asked us, "Is it true that it takes 21 days to break a habit?"
1: No. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, maybe I don't. I've never. I haven't heard that. But you know, what we do know about habits is that there is a myriad of ways in which a habit is instilled, and a myriad of factors that can kind of affect how rapidly you form a habit or how resilient it might be. And things like how, how motivationally salient the outcome of your actions are. So how afraid am I of mm-hmm. this given context? I'm going to learn a behavior much more rapidly and then in turn that will transfer into a habit more rapidly. Another factor is just how long you've been doing the action and how well you've been paying attention to the action. All of these things affect how likely a behavior is to become habitual.
0: And this question from Fahd, does that mean depending on how you've learned to behavior you may need a different approach on how you change it?
1: Honestly, I um, don't know the answer, but a lot of um, people now are talking about the next step, and something that people are really um, concerned about at the moment is, well, how can we break a habit, mm-hmm. but we simply don't have the data. And the reason that we don't have the data is because it's incredibly difficult and laborious to actually instill habits in healthy people in a lab, mm-hmm. they have to be in for a, like a long period of time, and even then, the effects you get are quite um, modest relative to like maybe a group of patients who have you know a trait or something you can naturally see occurring. But if you're trying to get a healthy person to form a habit and break one, you're talking about like a six month experiment, <laughs> I
0: think. Oh well, I, don't, okay. I mean, but
1: it hasn't been done because it's um, it's just very difficult to do.
0: Do you have any bizarre habits yourself? Um, <laughs>
1: I you know I do. Um,
0: well, what you the- prepared to share? Obviously. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. Well, <laughs> I, I mean, some OCD features I definitely have. So I'm a complete mess. I'm very disorganized. This is the kind of stereotype of OCD is who's extremely organized and has to have everything done a certain way. So I'm the polar opposite of that. But I quite frequently get these kind of intrusive, annoying, disturbing thoughts. Mm-hmm. So I guess it's not really like a cute story, but like I have, <laughs> every time I get outside my apartment, I have this, the same place when I walk by, I get this thought that I've left the hair straightener on in my room. Uh-huh. Now, I don't even use that thing on a daily <laughs> basis, but even if I haven't used it, and I know I haven't, at the same point when I walk in the street, I'll get that thought. So... It kind of reinforced my thinking that there's nothing categorically different about psychiatric patients and regular people. I, I definitely don't have OCD, but I I get that annoying thought, like, almost every day when I walk by this one patch.
0: Yeah, and I think yeah. we all do. You, you get to the car and you think, have I locked the house mm-hmm. or have I left the gas on? Yeah. All this kind of stuff. And even for someone who knows they don't have OCD, that yeah. can be really disturbing.
1: Yeah. I mean, for me, it's the repetitiveness of it. Yeah. That, like, I can talk about it now, and it's like, it'll still happen tomorrow. <laughs> it's like, you know, we don't control our brains yeah. that well. Like, and if I can know everything I know about this kind of field, and every day I get that thought. Um,
0: so a complete <laughs> departure from the research. Uh, for those who don't know, Claire, it's also... Um, heavily involved with the initial Pint of Science event. So she helped organise the one in Cambridge. Um, Can you tell us why you decided to get involved?
1: Well, what's really nice about living in a university town is that you just meet people who work in areas that are totally different from yours. They're your friends. They're who you're talking to in the pub. And you always have these, like, oh, wow moments when you, like, Finally, ask someone what they do, and they start like talking about it over a pint. And mm-hmm. it's like a, those moments were always um, you know, really wonderful, like, and really nice to hear it from somebody who's an expert, but them telling you in a kind of casual way. Mm-hmm. So then, um, I mean, I can take no credit for founding Pint of Science or anything like that, but I was friends, um, or I am friends with Misha, who organized the whole festival, and he can get anybody to do anything, I think. He's I think so, so excited so. <laughs> um, about it. So, um, yeah, we just gave it a go and I think it was, it was wonderful for everyone involved. I think all the speakers as well got out of their comfort zone and, you know, everyone came in and had a good time. It was great. Yeah.
0: And how was it to be on the other side? Because in New York, obviously, you got to be one of the speakers instead.
1: Yeah. It was, um, it was a challenge, a lot more of a challenge than I thought. You know, um, preparing, you realize that you're going to get, you can't really prepare because you're going to get questions that are so off the wall. and. And they're really insightful questions or things you've never thought about. But that means you've never thought of an answer to it either before. <laughs> so, you know, you have this kind of a, an anxious week uh, preparing for it. But it was great. And I think, yeah, it was, um, it'll be useful moving forward to be able to do that.
0: Yeah. Well, it's been really nice to meet up with you in person. And we hope you enjoy your kind of science plank gloss. Thank you again so much. In my heels I find The things we leave behind Just dying on the line And never asking why
1: I was as you would be a little concerned about employment so I um, decided to apply for these things called JRFs um, which are junior research fellowships at Cambridge and every so often colleges advertise these positions and they're very prestigious they're sought after you get like a fancy room in college and you know it's all great Um, but they're very competitive so I spent a long time writing these um, long drawn-out applications I, I can't remember but i probably applied to between three and five different colleges. But the one that I really wanted was the most prestigious college, which was King's College, Cambridge. I think it paid the best, but Mm -hmm. also it's like a beautiful college and um, it would have been great um, to get it. So, you know, putting these applications, panicking like, okay, I've got six months left, I don't have a job. Um, And I get an email back from them um, saying, Dear um Miss Gillen at the time, you know, we got your application, unfortunately, we're not going to invite you to interview, you know, yada, yada, yada. Didn't read the rest, I'm sure. Um, but so I got the email and I was like disheartened. And so I I forwarded the email to my partner and I just wrote like a little sad face in the email. You know, I didn't want to like go into it too much, but just a little sad face. And then I think it was like an hour later when I realized that I'd hit reply <gasps> instead of forward. I think it's maybe the I don't know, the cutest response they've ever gotten. Like <laughs> a rejection. And even if I do, that doesn't make it true. I'm still a part
0: of you. you have just been listening to a Two Scientists podcast. Now if you'd like to keep up with our new releases, you can follow us on Twitter at 2SCIS, Facebook or Google Plus using the handle 2Scientists, or for the more old school among you, you can check out our website at 2scientists.org. Thanks for tuning in.